Just a note before we begin this episode. There's no question that many of our episodes aren't suitable for all listeners. That sort of comes with the territory. But I did want to warn you that there will be some stuff in this one that some listeners are going to find troubling and possibly offensive. So listen at your discretion. And don't say we didn't warn you. On the cold morning of December 12, 1910, a 25-year-old socialite and heiress named Dorothy Harriet Camille Arnold left her parents' home in Manhattan to go shopping for a new dress. Her younger sister was making her society debut. It was the holiday season in New York at a time for festivities, galas, and balls, and Dorothy was said to have been especially excited about this one. Dorothy was a carefree young woman, or so everyone thought at the time who left the house to buy that dress and then just vanished without a trace. The mystery of her disappearance remains as baffling today as it did more than a century ago. There were no solid clues about where she went, but there were plenty of theories, as we'll soon see. A newspaper in 1911 wrote about Dorothy. She disappeared from one of the busiest streets on earth at the sunniest hours of a brilliant afternoon with thousands within sight and reach. Men and women who knew her on every side and officers of the law thickly strewn in her path. But of course, none of that really mattered because Dorothy Arnold was gone. Welcome to American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. And welcome to our brand new season, Gone, which is hosted and produced by Cody Beck, and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. America is a place that is filled with mystery and darkness. It's a place where tragic events occur and where mysteries for which no rational explanation exists happen far too often. Those mysteries often include unexplained disappearances, just like the ones we'll be talking about this season. We open the files about people who have vanished without a trace, never to be seen again. Their stories are often bizarre, unexpected, and sometimes seem impossible. But one thing we know is that they did happen, and that these people simply walked out the door one day and never returned. Their stories have no conclusion. Their cases remain open. Their mysteries unsolved. They're gone. But we won't allow them to be forgotten. This is episode four of this latest season, one that shows that just about anyone, no matter how unlikely, can just disappear one day and never return. Maybe even you. Dorothy Arnold was not an average young woman. She was a person no one would ever expect to disappear. She and her parents, along with her 22-year-old brother Daniel and her 19-year-old sister Marjorie, lived on East 79th Street near Park Avenue on Manhattan's Upper East Side. Her father Francis was the owner of F.R. Arnold and Company, an importer of druggist supplies, and could trace his family line back to the Mayflower. His sister had married U.S. Supreme Court Justice Rufus L. Peckham. He graduated from Harvard in 1856, the same year his 
much younger wife, Mary, had been born. The family was a proud one, known for its propriety, and Dorothy was the oldest daughter of that well-connected family in the old guard of New York society. Such a young woman simply does not just disappear. And yet she did. Because no matter how perfect Dorothy seemed, not everything was as it appeared. She graduated in 1905 from Bryn Mawr College, a private women's liberal arts college near Philadelphia. But her school life was not as proper as her parents believed it was. One notation of Bryn Mawr yearbook was for her performance in a comedic school play. She and five other girls sang and danced to a song that included lines like, We've got lots of bows, we never bother about our clothes, which was pretty steamy stuff for girls in the early 1900s. Well, after graduating, Dorothy returned to New York in her parents' home, living a life of a wealthy, unmarried, attractive young woman. In other words, not doing much of anything but throwing and attending parties, shopping, and having tea with her friends. A few days before she disappeared, she'd hosted a luncheon for several of those female friends. None of them heard her say anything suspicious, and she made no mention of planning to leave home, but would she have told them? Well, that's unlikely. Dorothy was part of New York society, and it would have been rare for her to have spilled her secrets to a room full of other young women, all worried about maintaining their own positions among the elite. On the morning of December 12th, Dorothy planned to spend the day shopping with her closest friend, but she telephoned the friend that morning to say she was going with her mother instead. When Dorothy was ready to leave the house that morning, she was well-dressed in a tailor-made jacket of blue serge that was fitted at the waist highlighting her blue-gray eyes. A matching ankle-length skirt, high-button shoes, and a large black velvet hat that covered the dark brown hair that was swept up high onto her head. She was carrying a silver fox hand muff and a satin handbag. She was five feet four inches tall and weighed around 135 pounds, which was perfect for a fashionable young lady of the day. Dorothy left the house alone. Her mother had offered to accompany her, but no matter what she told her friend, Dorothy had planned to go by herself. When she left home, Dorothy had about $25 of her $100 monthly allowance with her. To understand how much money that would be today, she had the equivalent of $787 left from an allowance that would be just over $3,200 today. She'd recently withdrawn $36 from her accounts to take a girlfriend to lunch and see a film spending the other $11 that day. So yeah, that was a $350 afternoon. Several acquaintances stopped and spoke with Dorothy as she walked west along Fifth Avenue, and others saw her going toward a bookstore on 27th Street. They all said she seemed cheerful. A clerk who sold Dorothy a box of chocolates said that she was, quote, very carefree. Dorothy walked more than 52 blocks that day, but no one, police or family, thought there was anything unusual in that lengthy trek. Dorothy was a healthy young woman and walking was her only exercise. She was not athletically, but artistically inclined. She loved books and hoped to be a writer someday. It was this aspiration that had led to a recent disagreement with her father. Only two months before, after a vacation to the family's home in Maine, Dorothy requested her father's permission to take an apartment in the artists and writers enclave of Greenwich Village. Francis Arnold exploded in anger and refused the request, telling his daughter that, quote, a good writer can write anywhere. Well, Dorothy didn't push her luck any further. 
Instead, she took her father's advice and over the next few weeks wrote a short story called Poinsettia Flames, which she then sent for consideration to McClure's, a well-known ladies' magazine of the day. Unfortunately, Dorothy told her family about the story and all of them began teasing her about her literary pretensions. The teasing became worse after the story was rejected a short time later. After days of harassment, she took the daring step of renting her own post office box so that any future correspondence about her stories could be kept private. By the time she disappeared, Dorothy had written another short story called Lotus Leaves, but it's unknown whether she ever submitted it anywhere. But on December 12th, Dorothy was more concerned about other people's writings than she was about her own. She entered the Britano's bookstore at Fifth Avenue and 27th Street, where she looked at a number of books. She then purchased a humorous volume called An Engaged Girl's Sketches by Emily Calvin Blake, which she'd recently seen featured in the Ladies Home Journal. She charged the book to the family account and walked it out into the cold. Outside Brentano, she ran into a friend, Gladys King, who was also going to be attending Marjorie Arnold's debutante ball. Gladys had her RSVP to the party invitation in her bag, and she handed it to Dorothy, making a joke about the postage saved. Dorothy laughed, and the two chatted for several minutes. Their conversation ended when Gladys remembered that she was supposed to meet her mother for lunch. She said goodbye and hurried away, turning around at the corner of 27th Street to wave to Dorothy one last time. She was the last person who knew Dorothy Arnold to admit to ever seeing her alive. When Dorothy didn't return home for dinner that evening, her family reluctantly ate without her. It was very unusual for her to miss a meal, especially since she hadn't told anyone that she wouldn't be home. After a few hours passed, the Arnolds began to worry. Francis telephoned his oldest son, John, who was married and no longer living at home, and told him that Dorothy was missing. John rushed over to the Arnolds. Later that night, the family began to make discreet telephone calls to Dorothy's close friends, asking if she had dropped in on them. Told that she hadn't, the Arnolds begged that no mention be made of the telephone call. It was all about the avoidance of scandal, and later they asked the same girls not to speak with reporters, and none of them ever did. On this first night, a friend named Elsie Henry, one of the people who had been called, telephoned back around midnight to see if Dorothy had returned home. But Mrs. Arnold answered the call, and again, hoping to avoid any sort of impropriety, lied and claimed that Dorothy had come home with a terrible headache and had gone to bed. Over breakfast the next morning, the worried family made another decision that was meant to keep their troubles private. They agreed not to call the police. Instead, Dorothy's brother John telephoned a friend named John S. Keith, a junior partner in the law firm of Garvin and Anderson. Keith was only a year older than Dorothy and occasionally escorted her to social functions, dances, and society gatherings. Well, John refused to tell Keith what was wrong on the telephone and insisted he come to the Arnold home that morning. When Keith arrived, he was told about the young woman's disappearance, and his help was enlisted in the search for her. He was taken directly to Dorothy's room, where everything seemed to be in order. 
Mrs. Arnold assured him that none of her dresses were missing, except for the one that she had been wearing the previous day. Keith searched the room and found a pile of personal letters, some with foreign postmarks. On the desk, he found two transatlantic steamship brochures. Getting down on his knees, he peered into the fireplace and discovered a small bundle of burned papers. He poked at them, but saw no writing on the charred remains. John suggested that the burned papers might be the manuscript for Dorothy's rejected story, Poinsettia Flames, but whether they actually were or not, well, that remains a mystery. John Keith used the resources of the law firm to assist the family, who were among his firm's most important clients. And for several weeks, hospitals, morgues, and jails were contacted and searched in New York, Boston, and Philadelphia. Keith himself inspected patients, inmates, and corpses before finally giving up in despair. The Arnolds were still adamant about not contacting the police or the press, so he suggested the family hire the Pinkerton Detective Agency, who were more suited to continue the investigation than the law firm was. The Pinkertons created an advertising circular about Dorothy to be mailed out to police departments across the country. Dorothy and her clothing were described in detail at a $5,000 reward, which is over 157,000 today was offered for information leading to her safe return. I'm assuming that the New York Police Department got one of the Pinkerton flyers, but following the protocol they used in dealing with the city's upper crust residents, they weren't going to get involved until they were asked to. But after six weeks of wasted time by John Keith and the Pinkertons, Francis Arnold was finally forced to contact the NYPD. Accompanied by Keith and two Pinkerton operatives, he went to see New York Deputy Commissioner William J. Flynn. Already familiar with the general facts in the case, Flynn, who would later become head of the United States Secret Service, advised an immediate press conference with the city's biggest newspapers. This would, he explained, bring the most attention to Dorothy's disappearance. But that was exactly what Francis Arnold did not want. Up to this point, very few people knew that Dorothy was even missing, and he preferred it that way. He dreaded the notoriety that was sure to come, and he argued with Commissioner Flynn and the Pinkertons for two days before finally giving in and contacting the newspapers. He summoned reporters to his office and announced that his daughter had disappeared. He told them that he believed Dorothy had met with violence, perhaps in a secluded section of Central Park. One editor agreed with him and wrote, Especially in bad weather, there are many places at which strong men might seize, bind, and gag even an athletic young woman such as Miss Arnold and force her into a cab. In this writer's opinion, the robbers rarely intended to murder, but the blow from a club is dealt harder than intended. Francis feared that Dorothy had been attacked and her body thrown into the reservoir. As grim and hopeless as this sounds, the rigid and proper Mr. Arnold would rather his daughter be dead than the many alternatives that began to be suggested once the news of the vanishing reached the newspapers. In January 1911, Dorothy's photo began appearing in papers in New York and all over the region. It didn't take long for reporters and the public to start speculating about what had happened to the pretty young woman. Some theorized she'd been murdered, while others said she'd simply run away to escape from her oppressive home life. It also didn't take long for the first lead to be reported to the police. A riverfront store owner on the Lower West Side was certain that Dorothy was a young woman who, just days before, 
had entered his shop and nervously asked to exchange some expensive jewelry for men's clothing. And yes, this was six weeks after she had disappeared. The reason the woman gave for wanting a man's suit of clothes, she claimed, was for a masquerade party. The store owner also stated that his customer was asking about steamships sailing to ports in Europe from Hoboken, New Jersey, which seems like a really random question to ask a guy who runs a clothing store, but anyway. There was nothing in the newspaper article about this incident that said whether or not the customer bought anything. If not, she may have gone to another shop, but the merchant claimed to see her walk across the street toward the dock where ferries cross the Hudson River to Hoboken. Well, after the store owner relayed a story to the police, a detective wired a French steamship that had recently left Hoboken and inquired if there was a young woman on board. Oddly, the detective left out the part that she might be dressed as a man. So no surprise, this tip led nowhere. Another theory that was widely circulated was that Dorothy was in a hospital somewhere, suffering from amnesia. It was thought that perhaps she'd slipped on an icy sidewalk that chilly afternoon and had fallen, striking her head on the pavement. A thorough check of the hospitals never revealed anyone matching her description, though. The police chased leads that hinted at suicide, elopement, amnesia, and personal rebellion, but found nothing but dead ends. As the publicity spread, Dorothy's sightings began coming in from all over America, as she was recognized in hundreds of cities, but all the reports turned out to be false. On one occasion, a headline that read, Dorothy Arnold found, spread across the country, but it turned out to be a hoax. But the rumors then began to take a darker turn. Some insisted that Dorothy had been kidnapped right off the street and then forced into involuntary service as a prostitute. This was an era when white slavery rackets were the subject of terror to young women, worried families, and social reformers all over the nation. Prostitution has been with us since the beginning of reported time. Brothels, houses of ill repute where men could engage in sex with women for a price, of course, followed in the wake of the world's oldest profession. After the Civil War, many American cities, including New York, Chicago, Boston, New Orleans, and scores of others, created segregated vice districts where prostitution could be managed and regulated. Longtime listeners will remember that in our New Orleans season, we spent an episode talking about Storyville, a vice district created by the city council to keep prostitution and crime under control in the area. But not every vice district in America was Storyville, and not every woman who worked in the sex trade in the late 19th and early 20th centuries were willing participants. There were many stories told about men who waited for young girls at big city train stations, offering them employment as shop girls and maids, only to kidnap them, take them to the nearest brothel, and have them broken in as sex workers. Stories like this ran rampant at the time, usually spread by social reformers and religious groups, as they worked to convince mayors and city leaders to close down the vice districts. White slavery became a go-to term for these groups after a story circulated about a kidnapped sex worker who allegedly tossed a note pleading for help out of a window of a brothel in the Custom House Vice District in Chicago. The note read, 
Help! I'm being held captive by a white slavery ring. Well, the story later turned out to be an embellished bit of propaganda, but it did the trick at the time. Soon stories of kidnappings, brothels, and pimps were being spread across America and were being talked about by people who wouldn't have dared utter a word about prostitution in the past, especially in church, where many of the stories were coming from. By 1909, there were widely circulated claims that as many as 65,000 daughters of American homes were falling prey each year to sex trafficking. It was an outrageous number, but the press ate it up. That same year, a New York police chief named Theodore Bingham stated, Your little girl is not anywhere safer than the 46,000 that are every year trapped in houses of shame. Well, true or not, white slavery became an undeniable force during that era, at a time when almost no one could believe that a woman would willingly take part in sex work. Reformers ignored the idea that there could be other factors, like abject poverty, that caused it. These women had to have been kidnapped, beaten, and imprisoned by a white slavery ring, which was run, of course, by foreigners, usually Italians because they were Catholics and, of course, natural criminals. The ideals of womanhood at this time did not allow a woman to choose such a life. She only did so because she was victimized by a powerful conspiracy created by those foreigners. Women did not resort to prostitution, but were subjected to tricks by recruiters, including drugged drinks, chloroformed cloths, or hypodermic needles, which led to their captivity. Women's organizations such as the Women's Christian Temperance Union and the National Congress of Mothers were active against prostitution, along with other causes, and sponsored public talks warning of the dangers of white slavery, a danger that was a whole lot lower than they convinced everyone to believe. But the fear of white slavery reached its peak in the United States with the passage of the Mann Act in 1910, named for a lawmaker named James Robert Mann. The law made it a felony to transport a woman or girl across state lines for immoral activity. It was supposed to stop prostitution, immorality, and sex trafficking, but the wording of the law was so vague that law enforcement could even prosecute men when the sex was consensual, which of course they often did. Thanks to terror about white slavery being stoked by reformers in the wake of Dorothy's disappearance, it makes it a little easier to understand why her father might have preferred her to be dead than kidnapped. The fears that Dorothy may have ended up in captivity sent Pinkerton agents and police detectives into brothels all over the city, but no trace of Dorothy was found. It wouldn't be long before another possibility about Dorothy's disappearance would emerge that would be, in the minds of many, even worse than white slavery. In one newspaper story after another, Dorothy's mother insisted that her daughter was not being courted by anyone and was not in love. In her mind, this ruled out the idea that Dorothy had run off with a lover. But even though Mary and all of Dorothy's friends were sure there was no man in the girl's life, a zealous reporter was able to find one. That man's name was George Griscom Jr., a plump, balding 40-year-old bachelor from Pittsburgh who frequently stayed at the Hotel Schuyler on West 45th Street in Manhattan. The newspaper soon revealed that Dorothy and George had at one time called themselves engaged, 
even though her father hadn't approved of the match. He called George an idler who lived off his father, a former vice president of the Pennsylvania Railroad, or that's what he told Dorothy. Francis had used his considerable resources to find out more about George Griscom Jr. He discovered that George had been engaged before to a very rich heiress in Pittsburgh. The night before the wedding, she broke off the engagement because he said she had too many dogs, or at least that's what the newspapers said. Francis believed there was more to it and seemed to think that George had a pattern of proposing to women from wealthy families and perhaps had been found out. Why Dorothy's mother and father chose to conceal that there had recently been a man in their daughter's life was a mystery. It was as hard to understand as the fact that they'd hidden Dorothy's disappearance in the first place. Anything to avoid a scandal, I suppose, but it was too late to hide it now. It turned out that Dorothy and George had met on Nantucket Island two years before when the Arnolds had been vacationing there. A love affair had developed, followed by a string of letters, and as time went on, Dorothy's love for George had increased. He wanted to marry her, but his hopes had been dashed by Francis Arnold. Apparently, though, Dorothy had other plans. Just a few months before her disappearance, Dorothy had accompanied her family to the Arnold summer home at York Harbor in May. During their time there, Dorothy had left for a week, telling her friends that she was going to Cambridge to visit her friend Theodora Bates. In truth, Dorothy had gone to Boston to meet George. He arrived in the city the day before she did and reserved a room at the Hotel Essex. The couple spent the entire week together and those who remembered them said they were animated and happy. Two days before leaving Boston, she entered a pawn shop and obtained $60 for an assortment of personal jewelry. She used her correct name and address and this incident was later revealed to the police. It's unknown what she did with the money, but it might have covered expenses she didn't want her father to know about. Well, Dorothy rejoined her family in Maine and George returned home to prepare for a trip to Europe with his family. The Arnolds returned to New York at the end of the summer and it was at this time that Dorothy made her request for an apartment in Greenwich Village, wrote her two stories and rented that private post office box. It was later discovered that before that, the couple had been corresponding through messages in the personal columns of New York newspapers and letters sent by George to Dorothy arrived general delivery at the New York post office. They were doing everything they could to keep their relationship a secret. On November 5th, George sailed to Europe with his parents. A short time later at Thanksgiving, Dorothy announced that she was going to visit her friend Theodora Bates in Washington, D.C. for the holiday. On Thanksgiving morning, Dorothy told her friend that she wasn't feeling well and wanted to stay in bed. It was so unlike her that Theodora assumed she was having female troubles, but even stranger was the package that was delivered for Dorothy at Theodora's home later that same morning, especially because there were no mail deliveries taking place on the holiday. Whatever was in the bulky envelope, Dorothy didn't open it or even comment on it. Theodora, who was deeply curious, asked no questions for fear of hurting her friend's feelings. On Friday, Dorothy, already a puzzling guest, astounded Theodora by coming downstairs for breakfast, fully dressed to travel, carrying her bag. Her friend was dismayed because she'd believed that Dorothy had planned to stay until Monday. Instead, she went directly to the train station and returned to New York. Well, her parents were as surprised as Theodora when she returned home that evening thinking she would be away until the first part of the following week. Dorothy spent the rest of the weekend at home, locked in her room, reading and sewing, or so she said. 
On Monday, she visited her downtown postal box, where she'd received several letters postmarked from George in Italy. When she returned home, she wrote a letter back to him. He later turned it over to the police, and for the most part, the letter was cheerful and chatty, but it closed with a paragraph that's raised as many questions as Dorothy's behavior over that holiday weekend. It read, Well, it has come back. McClure's has turned me down. All I can see is a long road with no turning. Mother will always think an accident has happened. Less than two weeks later, Dorothy had vanished. In the weeks that followed Dorothy's disappearance, the Arnold family told no one she was missing. Only the family's lawyers and the Pinkertons knew what was going on. But the Arnold family was not as uncaring as they probably seemed. Francis Arnold later told reporters that his wife's health had been damaged by the shock of their missing daughter and had gone to a sanatorium in Lakewood, New Jersey for some rest. He asked them not to bother her during her convalescence and out of deferment to her health and the family's social standing, the reporters left her alone, but Mary was not in New Jersey. Soon after Dorothy had vanished, a stack of letters from George were found in her bedroom. He and his family had arrived in Florence, Italy in early December. Mary and her son John decided to go to Italy and confront him about any involvement that he might have had with the disappearance. During their journey, attorney John Keith had sent a telegram to George, and it read, Dorothy Arnold missing, family prostrated. Cable if you know anything about her whereabouts. Guests at the hotel where George and his family were staying later reported that he seemed agitated by the telegram. He quickly replied he had no idea where Dorothy might be, but Mary and John were already on the way. More messages arrived, demanding to know if Dorothy was with him in Florence, but he assured the senders that she was not. Finally, on January 16th, a young man and a woman in a heavy veil arrived at the hotel. It was John and Mary Arnold. They stayed for two hours, and when they left, they took a packet of letters with them. John returned to New York alone a short time later. Mary remained behind with family friends in Europe, hoping that Dorothy might still show up somewhere near George Grisco. John was still on board the ship at the end of the month when his father held the press conference about Dorothy's disappearance. When reporters on the ship learned his identity, they peppered him with questions. He claimed to be totally unaware that anything had happened to his sister, saying that he'd been out of New York since November. The reporters had no idea that he was lying. When he returned to the city, he went straight to his father's office where he expressed his anger over the press conference. He'd remained opposed to the family, revealing that Dorothy was gone and didn't believe it should be public knowledge. Could this have been because John knew things that no one else in the family did? Things that could permanently ruin their family's upstanding reputation? And we'll come back to that. John refused to answer questions from reporters and with such a sensational story just taking off, the press spread rumors and innuendo, claiming that John had beaten George Griscom in Italy. He was said to be so suspicious of the man that he throttled him and threatened to kill him if he didn't reveal where Dorothy was hiding. Well, John didn't do any of these things, but it made such a good story in the absence of any kind of facts. Meanwhile, George had been exposed in the press as Dorothy's lover and one-time fiancé. 
He insisted that he'd had nothing to do with her disappearance, but he did say that she'd recently written to him, depressed, because a story she'd written had been rejected by a magazine. George told reporters he feared that she had been so distraught over this that she'd taken her own life. Now, whether he really believed that, though, well, that remains in question. George returned to America in February and joined in the search for Dorothy, saying that he expected to find her and marry her when he found her. He inserted personal ads in the same New York newspapers that he and Dorothy had once used to communicate, but there was no response. Meanwhile, the public continued to report sightings of Dorothy. A doctor in Florida claimed to see her, as did someone in Philadelphia, who saw her getting into a car with a strange man and woman. By March 1911, the police had dragged all the lakes in Central Park, but her body wasn't found. Chief William Flynn told the New York Times that he believed Dorothy's case would go down in police history as one of its deepest mysteries. He'd always believed she would return home, but he eventually reached the conclusion that she was dead, and what happened to her would never be known. And he wasn't the only one who thought so. After a month of looking for Dorothy, George Griscom publicly stated that he thought the search was hopeless and went home to Pittsburgh. But he didn't stay there. Within two years, George had moved to England and became a British citizen. He remained there until his death in 1938, never returning to the United States again. What happened that made him decide to move? A deep love of tea and crumpets? Or did George have something to hide? Shortly after George Griscom departed for Britain, a news story broke in Pittsburgh. Below a headline that read, Hospital for Women Called a Death House. A doctor confessed that a woman named Dorothy Arnold had been among the 20 or so patients in his maternity hospital who had been cremated in his basement. The story explained that women had come to the doctor for illegal operations, and when they resulted in complications and died, their bodies were burned in the furnace. Now, we don't know that Dorothy was ever actually at this so-called hospital, but it's certain the place was used for illegal purposes. What the newspapers were coming right out and saying, because, well, you just couldn't say it out loud at the time, was that Pittsburgh's maternity hospital was being used by the doctor to perform abortions. Abortion was illegal in every state in those days, but this doesn't mean it wasn't widely practiced, usually under unsafe conditions and carried out by midwives, back alley doctors, and people with no training at all. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, most abortions were done using drugs derived from saffron, mace, and rue that were said to expel an unwanted fetus. Other drugs came from known poisons and were said to kill the fetus so that the body would naturally expel it. There was also the well-known use of pennyroyal tea, which was believed the safest and most effective method. Before the passing of the Comstock Law in the late 1800s, which was named after a postal inspector named Anthony Comstock, who wanted to stop the spread of obscene literature through the mail, women could easily purchase abortion drugs through newspaper ads. The drugs would then be sent discreetly by post. But that became much harder to do after the law was passed. By 1910, they were even tougher to get. But not impossible, especially if you had money. I think it's possible that Dorothy had become pregnant. 
likely during that week that she spent with George in Boston a few months before she disappeared. I also think that the package she had delivered to her friend's home in Washington, D.C., which was far away from where it might have been discovered by her parents, contained abortion drugs. They weren't delivered by mail, but Dorothy could have easily arranged for their delivery from a less-than-ethical druggist. I think it's already been made clear that Dorothy was not the innocent that her family made her out to be. The problem was, the drugs didn't work. Dorothy spent the weekend locked up in her bedroom at home, but I believe the problem remained. This meant, just like those women who were unable to buy abortion drugs through the mail, Dorothy would be forced to go through a surgical abortion. An operation by a well-regarded physician who still did abortions for wealthy clients, whether they were illegal or not, might cost as much as $500. Dorothy's family certainly could have afforded the operation, but if she wanted to continue to keep her pregnancy a secret, Dorothy could not. When she wanted to keep things from her father, she pawned her jewelry and belongings, but that would have only gained her a little money at a time. There was no way she could have come up with the substantial sum needed for a safe abortion. This meant that Dorothy had to take what she could afford. A less than reputable abortionist might charge as little as five or ten dollars, but we have to wonder what such an operation entailed and just how dangerous it might be. An abortion done in secrecy conducted by someone with little or no skill could be a recipe for death for the mother, probably after an agonizing battle with infection. Was this what happened to Dorothy? Maybe, but if she died after an abortion, it probably wasn't in Pittsburgh. After the news of the hospital made the papers, attorney John Keith and two Pinkertons made the trip to Pittsburgh. By the time they arrived, chemists were analyzing ashes from the furnace. They were examining bones they found and comparing teeth to whatever records they had. No trace to Dorothy was ever found. It wasn't a foolproof investigation, since DNA wouldn't be able to be analyzed for another 70 years, but if Dorothy had sought out an abortion, it probably would have been closer to home. And that's exactly what would be claimed two years later, in 1916. An inmate at the Rhode Island State Penitentiary gave a statement to the prison warden that claimed that in December 1910, he had been paid to bury Dorothy Arnold in New York. According to the inmate who had two months left to serve on a two-year sentence, he'd been hired in a 7th Street saloon by a man who never gave him his name. He drove the inmate to a house in New Rochelle, which was about 20 miles north of Manhattan. When they arrived, they were met by a man referred to only as Doc and a well-dressed but very sick young woman. The inmate said the girl was carried outside unconscious. She was wearing a blue skirt and a white blouse and was placed in the back seat of the automobile next to the inmate. When he asked who she was, the man who'd hired him called her Dorothy. The driver, the inmate, and the unconscious woman drove back to Manhattan, where they took the 42nd Street Ferry to Weehawken, New Jersey. Then they drove north for more than an hour to an old house along the Hudson River near West Point. The men carried the woman inside, and then the two men drove back to the city. The next day, he was summoned back to finish the job. He was picked up in Manhattan and the man for the night before drove him back to the house. He was told that the woman had died and needed to be buried. A grave was dug in the house's cellar and then the woman wrapped in a sheet was placed in the hole and covered with dirt. For two days of work, the inmate was paid $250, a substantial sum at the time, worth about $7,800 today. He never learned the man's name but had the impression that he was working for someone else. Someone with money, he said. 
an NYPD lieutenant believed the incident deserved a closer look. And while he couldn't say for sure the woman was Dorothy Arnold, he was certain after talking to the inmate that his story was true. A prison inspector and four detectives dug up cellars in several houses in the area the inmate described but found no sign of a body. Well, the inmate insisted the story was true. The cops must have looked in the wrong houses, but eventually the search was called off. Later, there was some speculation that the inmate had made the whole thing up to try to get an earlier parole, but that didn't really make much sense since he only had two months left to serve. What it came down to was that even if the inmate's account wasn't taken seriously, the possibility that Dorothy had died from a botched abortion seemed to have been easily accepted by the police and the public. And it still makes me wonder just what George Griscom knew and why he suddenly decided to go to England and never return. Dorothy was likely dead, but that didn't stop the sightings of her in various parts of the country. Those went on for years, although in time they became less frequent, but didn't stop completely. In 1935, the press swarmed a Kansas housewife who was thought to have been Dorothy. They were convinced she'd run away and changed her identity until she was able to prove she was a few years too young. Oddly though, she did look a lot like Dorothy, and he even had an almost identical mole on her leg. Even so, it, it wasn't her. Dorothy's father, Francis Arnold, died on April 1st, 1922 at the age of 86. The writer of his obituary stated, quote, when theory after theory proved unavailing, he gradually gave up and retired to a life of seclusion. A few years before his death, Francis had canceled the reward that he'd offered for his daughter's return and continued to say that he believed she'd been murdered in Central Park. Over time, he'd spent more than $100,000 trying to find Dorothy, but had, it had all amounted to nothing. In his will, he'd added a note that stated he'd left nothing for Dorothy, for he was satisfied she was no longer alive. Dorothy's mother, Mary, died six years later. According to her obituary, her health had been undermined by grief. Unlike her husband, she didn't believe her daughter was dead. Too much uncertainty remained, she said, but she died in 1928 without ever knowing what really happened to Dorothy. And what did happen to Dorothy Arnold? Well, over a century later, we still have no idea. She wasn't kidnapped or held for ransom. No demand for money ever appeared. She was never returned for her family from a life of shame. Her body has not been discovered in some forgotten grave. There were no deathbed confessions from her killer. No old woman ever came forward to prove she was Dorothy still alive all along. Dorothy Arnold, the heiress who seemed to have everything, simply walked off down the street one day to go shopping and was never heard from again. I've got it turned down enough that I think it should be fine, so. Okay, well, 
All right. Fingers crossed. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for returning for more episodes of the American Awnings Podcast, where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. This is season seven of the podcast, which we call Gone. No, I don't like that one. I don't either. Uh, that's too, um, too Norwegian death metal. I don't like that. Oh, I do like that. Oh, I okay. guess that would have been Gone. You know, yeah, something yeah. like that. Cool. So I don't know. You we'll know. figure it out. Um, right. I'm your co-host, Cody. Anyway, Beckett. it's gone. It's called Just gone. To be clear, it's called. Yes. Gone. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck. With me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, the founder of American Hauntings, uh, Death Metal, Troy Taylor. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> hey, man. So What's how's up, it going? Dude? Everything good? No. Um, as we just talked about, <laughs> yeah, I'll just briefly, because the podcast fans, uh, you know, follow know. me on Instagram and stuff. Uh, I had to yeah. put my cat Carl down the other day. Yeah. Um, she had 18 long, great years. I'm sure people well, have seen that's her. The good, that's the good thing. I Absolutely. Mean, years is pretty good. So. It's way too old for a cat, but yes, I yeah. loved it. And um, and yeah. So other than that, though, things are starting to look up. It's warm outside. It's so nice right now. Yeah, today. Yes, today. today. <laughs> yeah it's yeah, like 70 out it there. is march you know so it's nice yes. to say that way but you know hey yeah how you been doing what's going on with good, you good no, no not doing too bad i mean uh as you know i've got my own cat issues to deal with yep so my cat's like a rabid diabetic now or something so Ugh. it's always something with these things but you know you, you can't you can't not have them is no the problem. So. absolutely but yeah, so anyway, no, things have been going okay. I, uh, I I wanted to say thank you to anyone who came along on the very first um, Spirits of Alton tour that I did uh, a week before, a weekend before this one. Um, everyone who came along braved the first attempt at the tour. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I hope they had a, a really good time. Um, I did, I guess, trying something new, which is something I don't often get to do after 30 frigging years of doing ghost tours, but it was new. I, I saw some things to change. So as I told everybody the other night, they got to do a version of the tour that no one else will ever see. Absolutely. So, you know, but you know, which, uh, which does. So thank you for that. I've got another one coming up in a couple of weeks. And uh, of course we have our spring and summer tours posted for Alton and for Springfield. We're even doing some summer tours in Decatur this year, which we never do, but it is our 30th anniversary of the haunted Decatur tours. So we figured we could throw in a few in the spring before we get to the falls. So. Nice. That's older than I am. Yeah, I know. I know. No, it's not. I know. That took me a second there, but <laughs> Uh, as for me personally, though, I do have more of those Spirits of Alton tours and uh, also have um, Ghosts of the River Road tour coming up uh, again. Some of those. Uh, my next one is uh, St. Patrick's Day. So that should be kind of fun, um, even though I think everyone celebrates like the weekend before or whatever. But yeah, it'll be fun for us to get to do it that night. But I also have dinner evenings at the Mineral Springs coming up in Alton. H.H. Um, Holmes, the Starve Rock Murders, uh, Southern Illinois Gangsters. American cults, of course, the St. Louis exorcism. And then, of course, my annual Lizzie Borden evening, which mm -hmm. I do every year, the first weekend in August, to mark the anniversary of the murder. So anyway, uh, check out the tours and the dinners at dinnerandspirits.net. So that's uh, that's all I'm going to push. That's all I'm plugging this week. So That's um, awesome. I had a, a friend come over uh, the other night that I hadn't seen from, from high school and Oh, geez, it's been years, but uh, we were talking and he's like, you know, I, I don't have a ton of books anymore because he kind of is like a nomad and moves around a lot, but he loves reading. But he said, one of the books I still have is uh, Troy's uh, Haunted Alton book. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Um, well, Troy, we have a, a listener review and I found out that 
even if somebody leaves a review on iTunes I, or Apple Podcasts, I guess I can't necessarily see it if they're out of the country on there. Oh. So we have a lot of reviews that are from people out of the country. Um, and I figured out how uh-huh. to, to see those. Uh, so this one is titled Fantastic Podcast. It says, as a listener in the UK, I found American Hauntings Podcast by luck, much like another reviewer. I'm so happy that I did. I also often find myself looking up reference locations on Google Maps to get a better understanding of the locations. The way the episode is split into two distinct sections, which serves to keep listeners hooked, is great. Both hosts have a great energy and appreciation of the topics they discuss. Um, and that's from Raffle from the UK. Oh, so well, that's cool. Yeah, so thank you so much. And I, I think watch a lot of their TV shows. So you do swap. So yeah. I think that's also just a nice way of people saying, look, if you don't want to have to hear Cody, you don't have to. Like you can just <laughs> you can cut it off. It's okay. Or maybe the they power. don't listen to me. Maybe they just tune into the second half. Oh, you know, See? you haven't thought about that, had you? Hadn't thought about that. That's probably you know what's probably what it is. Be a little confusing, but still, you know. <laughs> I don't want to know the story. I just want to hear the discussion <laughs> yeah, about yeah, the right, story. Right. Yeah, and be um, super lost. Yeah, so. I just I did, people probably some people just skip all the way through just to Ghost Riders, and it's a weird yeah. segment. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. we have makes no sense at all. Yeah, uh, you mentioned in the beginning of this that this might be a particularly um, offensive or upsetting episode, and I was well, kind of surprised. You want to talk about that? Yeah, I thought it might be a little triggering. There's a lot of, I mean, there's, I don't know, the prostitution stuff isn't anything. The new, sex work but, stuff, and yeah, that that wasn't so much new for us, but all the abortion stuff was. Uh-huh. And, you know, I didn't want to get into that being a big deal for anybody in either direction. Um, it's not, it was not a political addition to the story in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but there was a lot of talk about it because, I mean, I think that's really the answer to this story. Mm-hmm. I think uh, personal opinion here, and so since there was going to be a lot of it. Uh, I thought I would just kind of make a note of it at the beginning. Totally fair. And I think that that's, I think that's good that you even like said that or thought of that because I, that's like, because of who I am, that totally slipped past me. I didn't even think. Dismemberment, all that kind of stuff we talk about all the time, but you know, this, that just seems something that might be an issue. So I just figured, Hey, well, good on you, man. I think that that was a good call. Um, so, okay, so December 12th, 1910, a 25-year-old socialite and heiress named Dorothy Harriet uh, Camille Arnold disappears from one of the busiest streets on earth. It's interesting yeah. because I, I lived in Manhattan for uh, about a year, and yeah. I love the safety in numbers thing, but I could also totally see how you could just get snatched and like you just get yeah. into the crowd and no yeah, one would notice. Then, I mean, I think the streets are probably even busier then. I, you know, because most people were walking there, you know, there weren't any cars. I mean, there are plenty of carriages and things, but not very many cars anyway at the time. So with all those people on the sidewalk, geez, you know, I mean, you could end up anywhere and nobody would know about it. Yeah, it's so weird. So it's like, is is safety in numbers really a thing, or is it just you get both ends of the spectrum where you're pretty pretty much ninety nine percent safe, but you could also just be swooped real quick and nobody would notice. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Uh, you said that she walked more than fifty two blocks that day. That's a lot. That's like five miles, right? Yes. I mean, <laughs> that's what I thought. I was yes. trying to remember what the count was. I thought it was like ten blocks to a mile. 
or something. So, I mean, it's, or yeah. Well, yeah. So, so I used to walk home uh, from 28th street to stone street every Friday night. And that's what I'd make my calls to like my family and stuff. And that was about three miles. So I think you're pretty much probably right around in there, but that's, that's a long as fucking walk. I especially wonder too, since she was dressed up in the socialite stuff, I wonder what shoes she was wearing for that. Yeah. I mean, I I just kind of mentioned the color of them, but I'm going to guess they probably had some kind of heel on them. I mean, you've seen those old fashioned kind of shoes, like well, I mean, this is right around the time of like Titanic. So mm-hmm. essentially just go watch Titanic. You get an idea of the clothes that she would have been wearing. And so you're talking about lace up boots with heels. And but they said that was, you know, the all the reports said that was the only exercise she normally got. Um, so, I mean, she spent most of her time, you know, going to tea parties. And stuff. Right, so, right. You know, well, apparently that's not all she was doing, uh-huh. but you know, that's what everyone thought anyway. It sounds like a great life up until then. Um, (laughs) What's the deal with um, her dad not wanting her to move to uh, Greenwich Village and stuff like that? Well, I I, it was just that was not a proper thing for a young girl to do at the time. And Mm. she would have been doing it with the family's money because she really didn't have any money of her own. I mean, if she had sold some of these stories, I suppose she would have had a little bit. But, you know, that was a even that was a pretty unacceptable thing for a a girl from society to be doing writing stories and submitting them to magazines or, you know, working for a newspaper or pretty much any job at all. And not just marrying rich. and Yeah. You know, right. Exactly. I mean, she was expected to just get married, have a husband and and a nice house. And that was it. I mean, he didn't like her choice of fiance. She had this guy was a layabout who just sponged off his dad's money, which isn't that what all of these people were doing pretty much? It really anyway, sounds like it. Uh, yeah, but it, he wasn't hot on that. But it just was not acceptable for her to live in an apartment by herself. That was way too mm. bohemian for the time, you know. Gotcha. Okay, okay. Um, so the family starts, once she doesn't come home for a while, family starts freaking out, making calls. They don't want to talk to the police. Um, they call a junior law firm partner, John S. Keith, to hire the Pinkertons. So you said that even though eventually the NYPD gets a flyer, they're like, we're not touching this to our yeah, ass. Yes, Is that typical? did not do that at the time. I mean, it was, you know, we're talking about a very different time period here, uh, obviously, than now. And the people with money, the old money, I'll tell you, there's a great show that would give you a nice look at how all this stuff was worked worked in New York around this time. And it's called The Gilded Age and it's on HBO. Okay. And it was a series that I think it started last year. And I know they're going to do a season two, but you get the real difference in how the families were. There was the old money, there was the new money. The old money people were the ones who had been there since, you know, it was New Amsterdam when it was the, you know, bought from the Dutch. And the new money people were the the railroad people, the department store people who'd made a fortune in recent years after after the Civil War. And now they had money, but the old money didn't want anything to do with the new money. And so, you know, it was a real mixture of that kind of stuff. And so, you know, this is a case of where her father was, you know, fairly old money. Uh, They had a lot of power, Um, even if he had been new money. By 1910, that would have been after the Gilded Age. So anybody with money, you know, pretty much ran things. I mean, it was the police, you know, they knew what was going on, but they weren't going to get involved unless they were asked to. And the father didn't want the police involved because if he got the police involved, that meant that the newspapers would be involved and they didn't want their dirty laundry being aired in the press. You know, and this was, I'm going to say that 
there were suspicions that something was going on here other than her being, you know, her father kept saying, oh, she must have from the very beginning to the very end kept saying, oh, she must have been grabbed by somebody and clubbed over the head and robbed. But I think that the fact that they were so unwilling to let the, you know, the press to get involved and the police to get involved, that they knew something that wasn't going to look good was going on here. So that that's my opinion anyway. This one is, yeah, this one's interesting because a lot of times we're kind of like grasping at straws, trying to figure out like what could have possibly happened. And with this one, it seems like there's a lot of different kind of leads or like yeah. a more clear picture of this is probably what happened or some variation of that, right. you know, we right. at least have some things to go on. Well, um, and it's, you know, it became such a big story because again, for all the reasons that her father didn't want it to, it became a big story because you know, the family was well known. They were from a wealthy family. It wasn't some guy that owns a grocery store down the street whose daughter went missing. You know, it was a big deal. And people just like today, I mean, there's a reason why all these TV shows and magazines and newspapers and things care about what Harry and Megan are doing. I mean, who cares? I mean, they have no, they don't have anything to do with us in any way, shape or form. But yet, for some reason, people are fascinated with the rich and the wealthy, and they want to be involved. They want to know what's going on. So people started getting excited about her going missing, and suddenly there were, you know, all these reports of seeing her here, or seeing her there, or you know, hearing a story, or her being spotted somewhere all over the country. You know, everybody wanted to be part of the story because it was the only chance that common people would have to get involved in a in a story that involved this rich and powerful family. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay. Uh, you talk about how cities used to have like sex work districts and things. And we've talked about, um, oh, what's the one from back in the day? Storyville. We Sto talked about yes. quite a bit in New Orleans. And yeah, when I mentioned some of the levy districts in some of the other cities, we were talking about that. And I mentioned them here. I mean, Chicago had a very well-known, a bunch of different vice districts all over the city that were, you know, um, they were brothels for sex mm -hmm. work, uh, just like Storyville was in New Orleans. And and Storyville, we, we sort of paint it with this kind of, you know, broad brush of, ooh, you know, the good times were rolling. But I'm going to say they probably weren't always good times for the people who were involved, you know. Um, but by the, the turn of the century now, I mean, yes, you do still have all of these things going on in Chicago and St. Louis and Cincinnati and Cleveland and New York. And you've got these vice districts. And um, but now it's it's taken a different turn. People aren't looking at it the same way. Well, except in New Orleans, because that's <laughs> that's that's always going to be New Orleans. But right. people are looking at it in a different way. And you've got all these social reformers and these do-gooders who are getting involved with it. And and not looking at the fact that a lot of these women are are involved in sex work because mm -hmm. They have no choice. They're doing it for because they're in poverty. And this yeah. is the only way that they can feed their kids. And they're they're painting a picture of young women who are, um, you know, being forced into it by what they called white slavery at the time. And, and I talked about that in the story that became kind of a propaganda thing. Mm -hmm. um, not that it didn't exist. Uh, it's just like, you know, sex trafficking exists now and it existed back then. But it wasn't nearly as common then as the reformers wanted everyone to think that it was. And as I said, they were ignoring a lot of the problems that were forcing these, you know, poverty stricken women into sex work in the first place. So that became kind of a big 
um, you know, a, a big magnet for this story. Oh, what if she was kidnapped and sold into white slavery? She could be in a brothel somewhere here in the city right now, and no one would know it because, you know, all of these women have been forced into it. So that was something that that popped up that was, um, you know, part of the story. And so I thought it was worthy of mention uh, to talk about what was going on at the time to try to set the time period. Is it is it like... Uh... Back then, was it like now where if you were to say white slavery, like that's because it would get attention, people would actually give a fuck sure. then? Sure. Okay. Yeah, it's it was a lot like that. It, it, it got attention because, you know, everyone, again, wanted to look at these innocent young girls who had been forced into this because they'd been drugged or kidnapped or something, you know, ignoring all of the other reasons. And um, so that became kind of a go-to thing for um uh, I, I don't know exactly how to compare it exactly now. Like a buzzword? Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it kind of like the the people who took it upon themselves to decide that some music was offensive or um, took it upon themselves to say that, you know, only certain things are woke or whatever. You know, it was the same kind of thing. It was a buzzword thing. And white slavery was a was a magnet for social reformers and Christian groups and that kind of thing. Got it. Okay. Okay, so eventually, a reporter learns that a man named George uh, is it Griscom, Griscom, yes. Griscom Jr. is apparently engaged to Dorothy. So, do you is everything you could find? She really told like none of her friends about. Yeah, him? she didn't tell. I mean, her parents knew about it, um, and they called themselves engaged, but her father got pretty mad about it. Didn't want her to have anything to do with them, and he held all the purse strings. Um, but. As we found out, Dorothy, that didn't really slow her down. Mm -hmm. uh, she just decided to keep things under wraps, which she continued to uh, see him, write to him and be involved with him. You know, back back then when you were, you know, seeing someone back then was a little different than it is now. Sure. You would write a lot of letters, you know, kind of like texting or something now, I guess, um, or, you know, meeting someone online or that kind of thing. It was, it was kind of, I guess you would compare it to that. They had a really hot and heavy romance through letters. Mm -hmm. And then of course there was that fateful week when she slipped away when her parents were in Maine on vacation and she was there and she went down to Boston and hung out with him for a week. Um, that was, you know, kind of like you know, the same thing that, you know, it's like her tender date came through, mm -hmm. you know, and they decided to hook up or or whatever. I mean, however you want to compare it to today. I think I kind of made the I got the point across. And then right. when all that was over, when the week was over, Dorothy decided she wanted to, you know, get her own apartment, which, you know, her father wouldn't allow her to do. But she did get a private post office box with the saying that it was so that when she got letters back from you know magazines she'd submitted stories to that her family wouldn't make fun of her anymore but really it was to get letters and that might have been part of it but mostly it was to get letters from george so they got were doing it. everything they could to make everything you know keep everything secret so. got it i mean there's nothing better than like dirty talk and cursive you know like, <laughs> right right just, right on on flowery paper right <laughs> something i can't remember who said this but they said uh, speaking of like the p.o box stuff they said you know the post office like got it backwards it's like they bring your mail to you for free and then you have to pay if you want yeah, to go get right? it yourself somewhere else Where they don't even have to do anything but put it in the box i know right it's a little odd yeah so, uh, as someone who has a p.o box i yeah. Yeah. complain about it so <laughs> right 
Um, so, okay. So yeah, lots of letters. Um, press is eventually, you know, making stuff up once they kind of start to catch on to George and things. Um, he says, you know, hey, she's the, she was depressed because her story got rejected, but eventually moves to England, becomes a citizen. Um, and then there's like some confessions and things and, and some dead ends that come on. Yeah, well, and you know, she, um, you know, right after he looked for her for an entire month, um, <laughs> She yeah. just decided it was hopeless and left. Well, now, see, my, my thought on that is that he might have known more than most other people did. Although I, again, maintain that her parents, her family had some idea of what was going on. If not her father and mother, at least her brother. You know, there's that weird story about her going down to Washington, D.C. to visit her friend mm-hmm. over Thanksgiving and getting a package in the mail and then going home and locking herself in her bedroom for three days. Yeah. Theodore you know, Banks, that's a yeah. weird story, you know, um, and taken out of context is just weird. But once you start thinking of it in the way that I tried to kind of put it together here, uh, it all starts to make a lot of sense. What do you what do you um, think is the timeline of events here then? Like just spelled out real quick. Well, I think that she got involved with George, um, met him, got involved with him. That went on for a while, probably a year from one summer to the next. They continued to write, even though they weren't supposed to, but they continued to write after the engagement, or if it wasn't an engagement, was broken off. And then she went to Maine with her family that summer, mm-hmm. uh, left for a week, met George in Boston, got pregnant, and then a few months, mu- and then went home, tried to, you know, do the apartment in the post office box and then come early November. Now we're talking a a couple of months later after she comes home after the, the, you know, the Labor Day weekend kind of thing, time period, comes back home, goes to DC to her friend's house to get a package delivered that she couldn't obviously have delivered to her at home, goes home, takes the, takes the pills, the medicine that she's supposed to take doesn't work. And then come the first part of November, now she's three months pregnant or four months pregnant even, and has no other option but to try. Now, again, this is my opinion, Mm -hmm. has no other option other than to try and get a surgical abortion, which was extremely dangerous at the time. Now, she could have gone to her family doctor and probably things would have gone smoothly because doctors at the time, well, for the rich, of course, because the rich always have and always will have access to abortion. Mm-hmm. Uh, the poor are the ones who end up dying on tables that belong to midwives and back alley guys and guys who drank themselves out of a license and that kind of thing. Yeah, but, and then lo- those laws don't stop No, abortions. no, it, not at all. And so, you know, it was, it was commonly known that you could get a surgical abortion, but it would be expensive. $500 was an outrageous amount of money at the time, but the rich could afford it. Dorothy couldn't. Because she'd have had to get that money from her parents. I mean, mm-hmm. she was living on, or not living on, but was given a hundred dollar a month allowance. Mm-hmm. So five hundred dollars would have been an incredible amount of money. She was already pawning jewelry and stuff to try to keep up uh, being able to see George and to pay for the medicine that she had gotten and that kind of thing. And so she didn't have five hundred dollars to pay for a safe abortion. So she did whatever she could do, mm-hmm. and I think it it ended badly as it did for an awful lot of people at the time. Yeah. Huh. No, I mean, that seems, that seems logical. Um, and, and after, you know, after a while, Francis uh, believes his daughter's murdered. Mary does not. 
And you ended it by saying uh, Dorothy Arnold, the heiress who seemed to have everything, simply walked off down the street to go shopping one day and was never heard from again. And I think that just shows, you know, yeah, money can't buy everything. No, um, no, certainly can't. I want to find that out for myself, but I do believe it. <laughs> oh, right, right. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean, I don't really think there's that much more to talk about. Though. Is there anything you want to go over that I no, skipped no, over? Anything? Not really, because I feel like that, you know, there's there's a lot to unpack on this story, mm -hmm. but I feel like I tried to unpack it in, you know, in a chronological basis so that it all made sense and 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 tried to explain my my thinking behind this. Mm -hmm. I know that this um this season that I've already kind of, uh, you know, really put in a lot of opinions mm -hmm. on these stories so far, but you know, I, I just I feel like that with these with these these unsolved, completely no way to solve them, you know, events that have taken place that we're talking about this season. I think it's it's worthwhile to have something to consider. Yeah. I mean, if, if people have other ideas about them, I, I'm more than I'm more than interested to listen. You know, um, it's 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 a case of where I mean, no, nobody has the answers here. Uh, but these things just made sense to me. And uh, I just wanted to, to, to offer them as, you know, food for thought for anybody that's listening to the possibility and and the, 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 the way that things have changed. I mean, the way history has changed in this country, you know, over the last barely a century, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're, we're barely a century since this happened. And that's how much our lives have changed in that amount of time. Yeah, and, no, well, uh, I mean, I, I think the it's way kind of women are treated the way that women, you know, the lives that they have, or it's a lot different than it used to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, if we're going to do this at all, then we definitely should try to put some pieces together and speculate, you know, and try to yeah. maybe figure it out. I think um, if anybody's upset about Troy's opinions, I would just say you didn't even consider that I think she was abducted by aliens. I um, knew you were going to say that. <laughs> yeah. Or pirates. No, Cody thought that she was abducted by pirates. Right. Um, that was the whole boat thing. So, yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and they they smelled um, uh, fumes from the alcohol. And so they abandoned the boat. And uh, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Well, I'm, getting, I'm really, getting my wires. Then crossed. they held her for ransom. I mean, it was the first time that a ransom. OK, wait yes. a minute. That's uh, get, the wrong episode, too. Getting all my wires crossed in New York. Yeah. Um, uh, well, OK. I want to give a quick shout out to uh, our new uh, subscribers on Patreon. So thank you so much to for supporting the show to Kyle, Tiffany, Jenny, and Roxanne. Uh, it really means a lot that you're supporting the show. And uh, we've been rocking and rolling with pretty much a whole second podcast on yeah. Patreon. Yeah, in fact, I just sent you the penultimate episode. I saw today. that. So, I ignored it. Um, I saw it. it. Is, I, I know. It. No, I didn't want to swamp you on that one, but... Uh, so we only have two episodes left in the new in this this latest season in our other podcast, Come Prepared to Stay Forever. So um, there's only two on, two left, and then uh, we'll be taking a short break, and then we'll be back with a brand new alternate season. And yes, I already know what it's going to be. So yeah. I'm excited about it. More like a come prepared to take forever, Troy. <laughs> 10 episodes. Well, yeah, but the last one was 10 episodes too. And no. this actually had a lot more death in it. I think only one person died in the last episode. The last what? season, this one was a lot. That's true. What, what's, the, what's the quote though? Like a good story takes as long as it takes or whatever. That's or like, right. Yeah, That's or right. A, a bad movie's never too short. A good movie's uh, never too long. Or yep. Yeah. 
There you um, go. Well, it is now time for our ghostwriter segment. So if you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, you can email us at American Hauntings Podcast at gmail.com. So I'm not going to read any specific email this time. I just wanted to say thank you so much to the people who reached out uh, with uh, remote recording oh, suggestions. Yeah. That was very helpful. Absolutely. And I have a lot of yeah. ideas now and things we're trying. And that was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll uh, hopefully not have the glitches that we've been having. So yeah. Yeah, we'll yes. see what happens. But, yes. Uh, and it I, I did feel good about all the, the help that we got. So. Yeah, it was, it was it was awesome. So you know who you are. Thank you so much. Um, that's all I got, man. Okay. Well, that sounds good. Um, let's um I just want to remind everybody. I said let's let's do that, but that's not what I meant. I do what I meant was let me remind you uh -huh. uh, to leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen. If you can leave a review, go ahead and stick one on there. We really appreciate it. Um, also another reminder, uh, if you are, you know, signing up for an event or buying a book or whatever you're doing uh, on uh, on the American Hauntings uh, Inc. page, uh, make sure that you leave uh, or use the discount code. All you got to do is put in podcast as a promo code, get you 10% off. And speaking of that, March 17th, my brand new book will be out. So uh, yeah, it's uh, it's going to be here imminently. So I'm pretty excited about that too. Did you so, announce it yet? Yeah, I have. Uh, oh, okay. I've announced a little bit. Um, it is the, the new one is uh, One Night in Salem, the American Witch Oh, okay. Yes, yeah. Yes, so yes. that comes out on the 17th. So, uh, and as Cody mentioned, check us out on Patreon. Uh, we we really appreciate all the support that we've gotten on Patreon, uh, especially with this new series that we've been doing. It's made it worthwhile to do it because we've had such a great response from you guys. So uh, we we really do appreciate the help. Uh, so check us out at patreon.com slash American Hauntings, and um, then we'll be reading off your name before long, and you'll be getting cool shit in the mail. So I hate to admit it, Troy, but I did get, I can't remember where I got this message, an email or Instagram or something, but somebody did say they really liked the sound effects. And I was like, do not tell Troy ever. Because <laughs> then I'll just add more. Yes. <laughs> It'll Gosh. be every other line. There'll be a sound effect. Right. <laughs> and then he <sighs> coughed. <laughs> then we'll be doing that all the time. And yeah, it'll just be too much. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So thanks for sending that in. Whoever <laughs> yeah. That. Yeah. Well, uh, you shouldn't have told me. So I know. I know. <laughs> Try to speak the truth. But uh, this episode of the American Hornings podcast was written by Troy Taylor and it was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a review on iTunes. Tell your friends, neighbors, random people on the street about it and follow us on iTunes, Spotify, you know, I Stitcher. Spent a, I spent a lot of time putting this together trying to make it a little shorter and making it kind of fun uh -huh. and you're just not showing it the respect that it deserves just it's so I'm weird you want it to be short and um, then all of a sudden i know i am well i'm trying to help you to make it shorter and if you had i would not is have interrupted my, you is it my cadence is yes, it my it is oh, okay. it is it's very it's very just throw away robot oh okay yes. or you know what anywhere you listen just to your favorite care. podcast and you can find our website oh, american okay. See, now you're just now you're just com, sarcastic which i just rebuilt a bunch of stuff on the at the other day so check it out for more it info good. and uh, we did get show. those photos up that we promised we did i gotta get you oh man i gotta oh. do that i'm leaving a note right now i need them tonight Tomorrow morning yeah. oh, need them tonight oh yeah, wait well no no sorry i don't need them tonight to publish sure so no not to publish the episode but i want to promo it okay soon. i will send them to you in the morning Okay. Uh, send you some photos. So. Yeah. So now you guys know how the sauce is just made. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, TikTok. Troy's big on TikTok and anywhere else that you waste hours every day when you're supposed to be working or studying. We promise that we're much more entertaining. 
Thanks for listening. We couldn't, definitely wouldn't. I don't know why I do it. Do it without <laughs> you. So until next time, goodbye. Uh, see ya. So long. See you later. Okay. Um, right. So, okay. I don't know if you turn your camera on, but I know you do.